a new era is upon us and Tangent is back with a new limited series hosted by venture capitalist Jeffrey Berman and me, PropTech entrepreneur Edward Cohen. Tangent unites PropTech founders, real estate investors, urban leaders and passionate creators who are improving our cities and quality of life. Join us to learn how we can solve the present day challenges in our communities with innovative technology and greater collaboration. We'll examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. If you are working on a PropTech solution, a nonprofit, or a small business that makes our cities better and would like your mission featured on our features segment, please email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. Today I'm joined by my co-host Jeffrey Berman, partner at Camber Creek. Also by friend of Tangent, Zach Ahrens, co-founder and general partner at Metaprop, and special guest, Brad Hargreaves founder and chairman at Common and contributor to Thesis Driven, deep dives into real estate themes and models featuring operators, executives across the country. Hi guys, where does this podcast find you? Good morning, Edward. Uh, I am here in Manhattan, New York City. This is Jeff. I am in Florida, where it is nice and sunny. This is Zach. I'm on my way to Providence, Rhode Island to support the venture capital efforts at my alma mater, Brown University. By the way, you know what's great about this? We always just manage to catch Zach in transit, and yet he still finds time to regale us with with the with the veritable pearls. I I love this so much. Zach calling in from his car. It's also coincidentally where he does some of his finest work. Just don't podcast and drive, kids. <laughs> so I am in the humid outskirts of a volcano in La Fortuna, Costa Rica, which uh, might be a great metaphor for what the last three to four days have been in the tech world. So. Where are we in the timeline this morning? Uh, so Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank both entered receivership. In other words, they were taken over by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp and declared that all depositors will be made whole. Uh, shareholders and bondholders might be screwed, TBD. Uh, and then First Republic Bank, another large real estate lender, lost 60% of its value pre-market this morning uh, and stock trading was halted. Just to understand the scale of what's happening, uh, SVB's customers withdrew $42 billion only last Thursday, uh, which was more than $1 million per second for 10 straight hours. I mean, talk about a bank run at the speed of a tweet. Uh, Brad, so during the last 72 hours, we had the second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history. Um, not all Tangent listeners have been glued to Twitter's dopamine, so if you would be so kind, uh, give us the quick rundown on SVB's business, how we got here, and, and how interconnected they were with the overall tech sector. Well, you, you really said it, that it was, uh, it was a bank run, and it was a bank run really mediated by uh, social media. Um, and something that, you know, you think about bank runs in the early 20th century requires the line outside the bank, people going in to withdraw their cash. Well, you know, I can pick up my phone and withdraw money from my bank, take it all out. And I can do that within seconds. And I'm on Twitter all day long. So I see what everyone else is 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 saying. So this was kind of a both a very old problem of a bank run, but but a very new problem. And, you know, I, I don't know how technical or deep we want to get here into SVB's 
financial situation, but you know, ironically, it was not their loans to startups by and large that that did them in, even though people perceive that as the, the riskiest part of their business. It was in fact the safe portfolio, you know, air quotes safe, uh, that they bought during the tech run-up of the past three or four years. They took a lot of deposits in from venture-backed tech companies, from VCs, and they put that into long-term treasuries, bonds, etc. at a time when rates were much lower. Now, obviously, rates have increased, so the value of those bonds, of those treasuries, the market value has gone down because there are more attractive products that someone can go out and buy. Now, there's not really default risk of those products, so if they had held on to those bonds, they would have been made whole. The problem is liquidity. The problem is if they were to go out to market and say have to sell their bond portfolio, they would have to take a loss on that. And mid last week, they went out and sold, uh, they sold some equity and they sold some bonds and they took a $2 billion loss on those bonds. Now, that is certainly survivable for an institution of Silicon Valley bank size with $200 billion of deposits. But I think a lot of people looked at that and said, well, if they're, if they're taking a $2 billion loss for liquidity, things have to be pretty bad over there. And that plus, you know, you saw a lot of VCs, some very prominent VCs, go out to their portfolio companies and say, you know, we don't really trust what's going on at SVB. Take your money out. You saw some VCs tweet about this. Go out on social media. So all this added up to good old-fashioned bank run, which what we saw last Thursday. Brilliant uh, detail uh, on, on what how we, we got here. Um, and before we jump into the, the VC side, luckily we have two of the most prominent PropTech v venture capital investors with us here in, in Jeff and Zach. Uh, but wh why should PropTech and real estate folks in particular care about these banks? I mean... Uh, SVB was the 16th largest U.S. bank by assets. Nearly half of all U.S. venture-backed startups were involved with SVB. Uh, about 15% of loans on its books were secured by uh, residential mortgages and commercial real estate. Uh, SVB also held about $8.3 billion worth of loans secured by personal residence mortgages and another $130 million or so linked to home equity credit lines. The bank also held a couple of billion in commercial real estate loans, uh, out of which 35% of them were multifamily, 21% office. When it comes to Signature Bank, uh, they funded $36 billion of real estate loans, uh, which is about 48% of their total loans. So, you know, these are these are banks that are definitely exposed to, to real estate and to PropTech. Um, so Jeff and Zach, uh, what advice are you giving PropTech founders navigating this current life landscape? I mean, how, how to approach these liquidity issues? Well, first of all, Liquidity issues can be solved in, in a number of manners, and most especially because our, at least our typical portfolio company, and, and we were fortunate in that very few of our portfolio companies actually had meaningful exposure, but typically you'll have insiders that if they're supportive of their portfolio companies, they will help them mitigate a short-term cash crunch or cash crisis. And I think we're seeing that across the board uh, I'd be surprised if if Zach and the team at Metaprop weren't doing the exact same thing, ensuring that 
the companies that do have some exposure, that they're able to make payroll, that they're able to keep the panic down with the people that are working within those companies. Because that's really where, where potential disaster can strike, where you have people that say, oh my God, all of our cash was at SVB. I'm not going to get my paycheck. I'm not going to be able to put food on my table and feed my, my family. That's the, the, the panic that you want to stop. Then you take a step back and say, okay, well, from a risk perspective, what could we have done differently? And to Brad's point, in this case, not very much if SVB was your primary banking relationship. Now, as it happens for Camber Creek, we would tell our portfolio companies, think about your financial relationships in the same way you think about your venture relationships. You want to have a, a nice varied set of these relationships in order to mitigate potential overexposure to one risk level lever. But in this case, where to Brad's point again, SVB didn't really do anything wrong. Every financial institution was doing the exact same thing. They were taking the, the historic deposits they were getting and buying these safe uh, long duration, this safe long duration paper. So I'm not really sure that there's anything that could have been done differently. So now, now that we have this crisis in the rear view, what we are again saying to our portfolio companies is keep an eye on your accounts, keep an eye on the relationships you have and, and try to plan for that uh, black swan event that obviously you can't really plan for. I think that's well said, Jeff. I'm, I think what we're telling our companies is paramount is to have diversified banking relationships. We don't want anybody panicking. We don't want to tell anybody to move something specifically from bank A to point bank B. We think that type of behavior is irresponsible. And we're frankly saddened and disappointed uh, today to call ourselves venture capitalists and to be in this industry that effectively caused a 40-year-old institution to go under an institution that had bailed out so many of our portfolio companies, giving them loans of last resort time and time again. So we're not in the business of telling you as a portfolio company where to put your money. We are in the business of telling you to make sure that you're in frequent contact with your banking partners. You know your banking relationships, they know you by name, they know your company, they know what you do, and then you want to be diversified. So, so there's some mega banks, right? Uh, there are local community banks you might want to support. Uh, there are tech banks that, that can be advantageous as well. And then there's some of these new uh, neo banks that are also attractive for a variety of reasons. Um, for us, the most important thing is diversification and strength of relationship fundamentally. Sound advice right there, and I mean, certainly tweeting in all caps throughout the weekend uh, is not a, a recipe for for keeping keeping cool and, and supporting you know SVV, which has been one of the if not the most uh, supportive institution uh, you know across the innovation spectrum, and PropTech is not an exception to that. Now, in terms of how will the fallout of SVB affect fundraising efforts? I mean, we know that in a high interest rate environment, I mean, it's already uh, challenging. But, you know, in terms of investor sentiment towards prop tech startups, how, how do you guys expect it to, to be impacted in the short term? Just one thing to mention is we're still in the middle of this. I mean, you saw trading halted on a wide swath of regional banks this morning and I think what happens next 
and whether you see additional contagion in the regional banking ecosystem is going to drive a lot of inventor, investor sentiment and appetite here. And as of 11.30 Eastern in the morning on Monday, we don't know what's going to happen yet. And so I think it's important to caveat that, that if you really do see contagion and a real financial crisis, I think all bets are off in terms of investors battening down the hatches for at least a few months. And, you know, particularly at the later stages, which have already pulled back quite a bit, limiting new rounds into or investments into new companies and focusing on supporting their existing portfolios. So I think a lot depends on, do you see more contagion into the regional banking ecosystem here? Well, and I, I think to add to Brad's point, the later stage companies, and let's define that. Actually, let, let, let's pull it all the way to series A. Series A, B, C, and maybe even D, when they're thinking about subsequent rounds of financing or subsequent capital sources, venture debt is going to be a question mark for the next number of days, weeks, and months. Not that it's not going to be available. It will be. There are quite a few banks and fintechs that stepped into the void that are eager to lend because they have a lot of dry powder. But the cost of capital is likely going to go up, up, up. And that's going to affect how, that should affect how companies look at that as, a, as, a, as another lever of their own liquidity. The housing affordability and supply crisis is one of society's most urgent issues. The Housing Assistance Council, or HAC, has been helping build homes and communities across rural America for half a century. HAC is a national nonprofit that supports affordable housing efforts throughout rural America. Since 1971, HAC has provided below market financing for affordable housing and community development, technical assistance and training, research, and policy formulation to enable solutions for rural communities across the U.S. HAC's mission is to improve housing conditions for the rural poor with an emphasis on the poorest of the poor in the most rural places. HAC has worked in every U.S. state and the territories and their vision is that by the year 2071, everyone in rural America has a safe, healthy and affordable place to call home. Learn more about what HAC's work means for rural communities by visiting ruralhome.org. Support their critical mission by visiting ruralhome.org. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to, you know, providing short-term debt to startups uh, based on, on future VC funding, I mean, which is a lot of what SVB was doing, is that similar to providing a construction loan without without acquired to have most of their cash at the bank as a covenant to receiving a loan? Uh, are those days over? So this is what I'm dealing with. We're talking 11.30 a.m. real time Monday morning. Um, now that the government stepped in to guarantee all the deposits, what we're most focused on is working with our founders who have venture debt. SVB specifically had a covenant that you had to keep your money with SVB. They didn't contemplate what would happen if SVB did not exist. The loan documents actually don't point to that at all. Um, they are assignable, though. Um, we had our lawyers tearing through the loan docs. Um, they are assignable to another party. So we don't really know what's going to happen, whether the FDIC just comes in and effectively zeroes them out. I think Jeff's point 
that other venture lenders will step in to fill the void. It's just at what price? People liked SVB because they had the best rates. They had the lowest rates. I think you're going to expect a lot more onerous venture debt terms. I think a lot of the other covenants, Edward, were tied to not necessarily where you kept your money, but your metrics, balance sheet or income statement metrics. I expect those to stay the same. SVB was really the only provider that was covenanting that you had to keep your money in a checking account with SVB. The other leaders in this space have covenants tied to recurring revenue, you know, debt service coverage uh, uh, ratios and things like that, less so where you're literally keeping your cash. The other point I want to make on PropTech specifically, as it relates to regional banks and potential contagion, it's unfortunate for PropTech because a lot of the banks that are seemingly most at risk right now are ones that have exposure to both real estate and to technology, uh, not PropTech specifically, but real estate separately and technology separately. Uh, I think if you look at Signature, they're an, uh, an unfortunate example of that maelstrom. If the real estate credit markets are impaired, the real estate equity markets are going to be impaired. Keep in mind for PropTech, if it's B2B, those are your customers effectively for the most part. So I would imagine that this indirectly cannot be good uh, for our sector if there is continued contagion in the regional bank sector. Well, and even taking a step back the for real estate in general, not just PropTech, where I imagine that this is going to cause buyers, renters, et cetera, across the spectrum to say, you know what, let's press pause. Let's wait until we have some more certainty in the market. There was their transaction volume had slowed down uh, precipitously, but now people might say, you know what, until we've got interest rate certainty, which is really what we were waiting for. But now it's not just interest rate certainty as a function of cost of capital, it's interest rate certainty as a function of the stability of the financial system. That is, uh, that's heady. As, as Zach, as our, as our friend Hank would say, woof. Woof. It's a major woof. But how do you, can you honestly, if you're the Fed, I don't like speculating on interest rates. I don't think that's what I should be doing as a VC. But can you look at our situation right now in this crisis and still raise interest rates by a half a point at your next meeting? I don't see how they do that. Yeah, Goldman Sachs uh, no longer expects as of this morning the Fed to raise interest rates at its uh, March meeting. So that's a, that's a welcoming sign that follows what, what Zach just said. Um, but this uh, you know, opens up two options for the Fed and, and how will this impact commercial real estate is, I think, something we should dive into. So the Fed right now could hike interest rates and do uh, quantitative tightening to, co to keep combating inflation uh, with a highly likelihood of a continued deposit flight uh, from regional banks as a consequence, flight to safety. Or option B is cut interest rates and add liquidity uh, to secure the system while inflation might might run too hot. So how do you see, uh, I mean, there's obviously one scenario that is much better for real estate and, and to calm down the crisis now, uh, but how do you see these two playing out? Look, if I had a view uh, and a lot of confidence on where interest rates are going, I would be trading bonds right now uh, and not be, on this, uh, not be on this podcast. But I, I would say 
you know, and PIMCO did just just come out this morning and say they also don't expect uh, you know a, a, an interest rate step up. Uh, so that does seem to be an emerging consensus. You know, it's it's tricky. This is certainly not bank failures are not the soft landing that the Fed was looking for. You know, this is all them trying to navigate that plane, lower interest rates without causing a recession and a collapse of the regional banking ecosystem uh, was not on their bingo card. Yeah, no kidding. And, and I think there should be some investigations to see, well, who's going to benefit from this type of maelstrom? Because this is, this is, I agree. Like this, this was actually, I don't know if either of you have read Black Swan by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, but this was actually quite a black swan because if not for the all caps tweets, I don't know that this happens. Brad, what do you think? Yes, I, I, I generally agree with you. And I do think that the VCs have a, have a big role and a lot of blame here. That said, if the regional banking ecosystem is so fragile that a couple of VCs panicking can send it all to the ground, we have a broader systemic issue in the finance world. Well, hold on a second. Hold on. Let's, 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 let's play that out. Because if we're talking, would you, would you classify SVB as a regional bank given the size? It would be categorized as one, even if it has, I mean, 200, it's the 16th largest bank in the U.S., you know? Right. But that's why I'm so, so then, so then like, are we, do we get into a, into a place where we say, listen, you have this entity, Silicon Valley Bank, that is arguably the most important financial partner to one of the primary engines of American innovation. Do we now say, hey, we're never going to let a bank get that big or be that important to a specific industry? Well, then obviously the, the, the syllogistic correlation is, well, what about money center banks, right? Like, what about their exposure? Um, I mean, I guess in the, in the GFC, we've already, we've already said too big to fail is a thing. Are we, say, are we either going to say that about these regional banks or are we going to put in place regulations that don't allow something like this to happen? In which case, does innovation potentially get stifled? You know, I think the question here is, do we need to make the deposit insurance statement that actually the FDIC has not allowed depositors to lose money in a bank failure, I think, ever? Do we make that explicit? Because I think a lot of people looked at the quarter million dollar limit on the surface and said, hey, I'm at risk. Even if I think I'm at risk just a little bit, it's safer to withdraw. Now that the government has come out and said all depositors are protected, should that actually be the stated policy? And if it is, are there additional regulatory steps that need to be taken to prevent bad behavior on the part of banks? Yeah, I think that's that's the conclusion a lot of folks are, are drawing now that implicitly or explicitly uh, depositors are now the responsibility or, or one of the main priorities of the FDIC and the Fed. I was going to say, and, and I think you have to look at the role of social media and the role of mobile banking when you're shaping policy. We live in a different world than we lived in 10 years ago in terms of the ability of influential people. And one of the most infuriating things watching Twitter over the weekend was seeing short sellers try to instigate a run on First Republic. I mean, I hope some of them go to jail. 
I I think that's uh, extremely responsible and like it's like you know some people want to call it late stage capitalism. I mean I'm still believer that capitalism is the greatest engine to creating value and to lifting people out of poverty. Uh, however, you know th that doesn't mean uh, unfettered and un completely you know you know borderline anarchy. Capitalism is is what we what we need right now. But going back to the original point as as to and and you know I, I definitely don't don't love throwing credit to. A couple of VCs tweeting and, and be having that level of influence to cause a bank run. However, in terms of was this imminent or not? I mean, what was it? Maybe a, a slow a slow motion bank run in the sense that you know U.S. banks now have over six hundred and twenty billion dollars in unrealized losses still. Like, what wasn't it this gonna happen sooner or later? It's a good question. I do believe that Silicon Valley Bank made some missteps in terms of how they played the yield curve. I don't know they could have anticipated rates to jump as quickly as they jumped overall, but but they are, you know, they are somewhat of a unique institution in terms of almost no retail. Uh, I think under 10% retail concentration. Uh, these are primarily businesses, large accounts, relatively easy for large accounts to get up and leave versus retail investors. Large accounts tend to be tend to be a bit flightier. Uh, they also have this issue that they have a client base that tends to lose money over time, uh, tends to burn cash. So I think there were some unique characteristics of Silicon Valley Bank that made them more vulnerable than say First Republic uh, that is a bit more diversified in its client base and certainly more than the average regional. So I think this is both, obviously there is there is real risk of contagion, but SVB is also somewhat unique given its client base. Right, yeah, I think there's lots of people pointing out that, uh, you know, quote unquote critical error of a large bank like SVB buying low yield bonds during the lowest interest rate period in history. However, is that too different than what all those uh, four cap commercial real estate investors did in recent years? I don't think that. I think that they need to, if the market was operating efficiently, they would have been able to raise the equity they needed and take the dilution required to raise the cash they needed to have the cushion they needed to compensate for those loans. They're not bad loans. They're just bad in the yield curve. So I think what happened was they mismessaged how what was going on in terms of just needing to raise more cash. Maybe they would have still taken a 40, 50 percent hit in their stock price, but that's the efficient markets doing their job. I think that causing a bank run should not have happened and was preventable. And I think that if you have markets operating efficiently, they should be able to raise equity at whatever terms the market will bear. If their loan book is, you know, only impaired, but not necessarily, you know, filled with toxic securities in the way we had coming out in 07, 08. Going back to, uh, to real estate, uh, you know, talk about tenants letters of credit. So when a tenant signs a lease, they're required to provide property owners with letters of credit, which are typically, you know, which are secured by a bank. Now, if the bank goes under, the tenant is in default. Uh, hence, you know, the building's value goes down. Like the ripple effects here could be sizable. Or am I reading this wrong? I think you're reading that right. But I think it's a little too early to 
uh, to prognosticate on what the effect is going to be that far down the, the chain here. But in principle, you are you are right. Yeah, I, I agree with Jeff here. I, I, I think it largely depends on whether we continue to see contagion. I mean, if we don't, both on the venture debt side and certainly in terms of letters of credit and the depository side, you're going to see other banks step in and serve that role. I mean, there are Silicon Valley Bank was was the largest and most well-known venture lender, but there are plenty of other firms that make these kind of loans. And, you know, we at Common, we had a loan from Triple Point Capital and we had a great relationship with them and they didn't have the same banking covenants that SVB had. Uh, so I think you are going to see others step into the fray as long as this is contained and the impact on the commercial real estate ecosystem will be limited. Actually, Brad, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Did you look at SVB's offering before you settled on Triple Point? We did. We looked at them side by side. And, by side, and we um, Which was cheaper? SVB was cheaper on the surface, but there were two things that were problematic with it. The first was technically they were less capable of doing what we needed to be done in terms of managing multiple residential accounts. Um, you know, they required that we banked with them. And, you know, we manage buildings. We manage, you know, hundreds of buildings. And that is actually, you need, you have certain technical requirements you need of a bank to be able to do that. And SVB was not very good at that. Whereas, like, First Republic is great at it. Um, the other factor is, you know, they, they have cash balance covenants. And my view is that, and I think this is actually a really interesting point insofar as we're talking about the fall of Silicon Valley Bank and those loans going to other servicers. I was not a fan of cash balance covenants. If there's a cash balance covenant, that money is not really, it's not really yours. You can't really use it. That said, I know of companies and have followed and been a part of companies that have gone below those cash balance covenants at Silicon Valley Bank. And they're pretty laissez-faire about it. You know, you give them a call, you know, they want to get on kind of a weekly update, how's fundraising going, you know, what's the path to get back into, you know, out of breach. But I've never seen them declare a company in default. And I don't know how another servicer at the FDIC or the buyer or wherever is going to treat those fairly unique covenants. And I think that's an open question here. So you said something really interesting there, and that's what I want to focus in on, which is that SVB was focused on two things. One, being a partner to the venture ecosystem, but the way they did that was requiring cash balances, which, what does that do? That gives them more dry powder that they have to deploy out, which increases the risk portfolio for them. And then at the same time, when the, and whether or not this is a good thing we can debate, but when going got tough at some of these portfolio companies, they didn't say, well, this is the agreement, you have to hew to it, and if not, we're going to cut you to ribbons. They said, okay, well, let's figure out how we continue the, the, the business relationship in positive terms and get you back on your feet. So they deserve a lot of credit for that because they probably, and I have, I, this is just anecdotal, I don't know what the numbers are, but I, I guess that they're pretty large. They probably saved a bunch of companies that ordinarily with other financial institutions would have gone under, should they or shouldn't they have? And that's a, that's a question like, should a bank 
be able to operate the way that Silicon Valley Bank did. I personally, until this completely unfolds, I don't want to make a, a determination one way or the other. I know I'm certainly a fan of, of what they have been historically for the for American innovation, but that's a that's something that, that we have to noodle on because the fact that you went with a different lender because of not just because of the that they couldn't handle the, the real estate aspect of your of the business, but because they had these covenants that you say, Yeah, you know what? We can go a different direction and, and be a little better off, even though on the surface of it, this rate is cheaper, which I think a lot of venture back companies say, it's cheaper, let's go for it. I think it's super interesting. And this is, I think this gets to the heart of uh, some of the tough decisions CEOs are going to have to make going forward as the venture, I mean, the venture debt ecosystem is almost certainly going to, uh, going to tighten. It's going to get tougher uh, to, to, to raise venture debt. I, I will, the one thing I will say is their flexibility around covenants was not what did them in. Like they did a lot of things that many lenders would blanch at would say that's extraordinarily risky, making unsecured loans to startups, not strictly enforcing your debt covenants. That's not what did them in. They were done in by the yield curve and a bank run. Yeah, to, to expand on, on what Brad means. So SVB had a particular double sensitivity to higher interest rates, which you know uh, the Fed has raised at a record pace in the last year. So uh, SVB on the asset side of their balance sheet, uh, higher interest rates means their, the value of the long-term debt securities that they had bought uh, decreases. Uh, while on the liability side, higher uh, interest rates means less money uh, from tech companies uh, depositing it. So lower supply of cheap deposit funding. So it was a double whammy in higher interest rates for, for SVB's uh, business model. But the, what, where do we go from here? I mean, uh, we know this is a fast-moving train and tomorrow, you know, we can have uh, game-changing news again and we probably will in the following year. But uh, where do we go from here? So what are some of the opportunities uh, that could arise from this? Uh, do you see any favorite asset classes in real estate or any subsectors within PropTech that could, that could uh, thrive uh, going forward after, after the dust is settled? Well, I certainly think there's an opportunity for uh, a startup or company to come along and do treasury and cash management for startups and small businesses. I mean, a lot of this would have been solved, uh, not necessarily for SVB, but for the companies that were in a tough position, you know, if they'd been sweeping money to money market funds and, and, and doing other things versus just keeping them in SVB accounts. Now, admittedly, SVB had covenants that prevented a lot of them from doing this. Uh, but it's one of those things that falls by the wayside when you're a startup is treasury management. But now that you can go out and put money into a money market fund at four or five percent, there's there's probably more of a business to be made doing that. I, I, I agree with you, Brad, but I'm I'm still stuck on we've got friends at SVB. I sit on a board with somebody at SVB and I'm worried about what's going to happen to those people. Like that's, that can't be just glossed over. And Brad, I know you didn't mean that at all. I know you, you were answering the question, but for, and I, and I think I can speak for Zach and, and probably Brad too. Like this is our industry that this is affected. And this is, we are in a, we're in a people business. I know we invest in technology companies, but it's relationships and it's people. And that's why what happened here, because they didn't do quote unquote anything wrong. That's why this stings. 
it, it stings. And I'm just hoping that, that, the, that the folks that all the way up and down the, the corporate ladder at SVB end up in, in if, there, if there is mismanagement, great, need to be held accountable. And there are stories in the media, and again, I'm, I don't know enough to make a determination one way or the other. But I know that there are quite a few people here that, that, are, that are unintended collateral damage. That's affecting me personally. And people, fortunately, it's a small number of, of our portfolio companies, but an additional layer of stress that's been put on them because of this. That's, um, so I, 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 that's, that's where my head is right now. I, I, I haven't really thought about the opportunities, and there, I'm sure there will be. But it's, you know, let's get through the people problem first, and then, and then we can sort that, all, sort that out. Absolutely. I mean, st- startup founders and, and employees are, are top of mind right now because those are the folks that might be impacted uh, and they had absolutely nothing to do with, with what's going on. Now, in terms of like zooming out a bit, you know, like we, we've had a record funding, you know, quarter after quarter for the past few years, uh, a lot of it enabled by, you know, great ideas, great initiatives, great companies, great teams. Uh, but also majorly by by low uh, interest rate environment. Uh, so so going forward, like as a as a prop tech industry, how can we deliver I- innovation? You know, how can we improve adoption? Like, is it gonna? What is it gonna take? Like, do you know? How do we quantify the value that we create? Do we need to work better public private partnerships? Like, what what will it take to to uh, deliver innovation for you know our communities, our cities, and and everyone? I would say. Go back to like what the Fed is trying to do here, which is a soft landing, trying to bring inflation down while not creating a massive recession for everyone and certainly not blowing up the banking ecosystem. The right way to do that is supply side interventions are things like permitting reform, regulatory reforms making housing easier to build. I mean, housing has been the big driver of inflation for the past six months. And a lot of that is due to lagging indicators. But you see these rising rates drive down the production of housing, drive down new housing starts. And you're like, this is that's going to eventually lead to housing to be even more expensive. And this is just not It's a very ham-fisted way to cool inflation. And I think the biggest opportunities, you know, if you look at the public sector, what they can do are going to be how do we build things faster, more efficiently, more effectively, and that the public sector has a hand in that and the private sector has a hand in that. So I'm looking hard on at construction technologies, decarbonization technologies, is we need to we need to build things. The supply side is how we fix this and how we avoid a world of sluggish growth and high inflation uh, for years to come. Amen. I think I don't know how, but you you seem to have read my notes because those are the three sectors that I have written down: housing, construction, and, and climate tech or, or energy, uh, and how you know it impacts our buildings. Uh, okay, I think that is all for today, folks. But uh, it's been, uh, you know, we, we will stay tuned if there's uh, major news arising again, uh, and we we are sure they will. Uh, we might get the crew together again to discuss it and, and get some inside inside takes and uh, you know just just live 
of what's going on. So thank you again for your time, especially Brad, Brad Hargreaves to join us as a special guest with such short notice. You can follow Brad at B Hargreaves on Twitter and you can subscribe to his blog Thesis Driven at thesisdriven.com. Uh, thank you to my co-host Jeffrey Berman and thank you to our friend of Tangent, Zach Ahrens. Uh, you will also be able to see Zach, Jeff and I hosting Tangent Tank, which will address uh, what Brad quoted as the housing crisis now recently that we need to be focusing on. Uh, so yeah, thank you for, for your time. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks everybody. Thank you everybody and apologize for the noise in the background. Even though I do think things may have to get worse before they get better, necessity is the mother of all invention and we'll come out of this better, faster, stronger, and a more responsible industry when we come out of it on the other side. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Tangent and share this episode with a friend. This season is edited by Katarina Silva and is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent and remember, collaboration is our superpower, so stay curious and always be learning.